If you are enjoying this podcast, why not try Baker Street 2033 by the same author, a metaphysical mystery involving Sherlock Holmes, virtual reality, and fictional objects. Available on Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon Music. Afterword by Herbert Denk. In this second edition, I wish to address several false and grossly damaging allegations that have been made in relation to this text. Although these contemptible assertions do not merit serious consideration, made as they have been by a veritable battalion of rogue academics, captained, unsurprisingly, by the seemingly irrepressible, self-styled, radical philosopher Horace Murgatroyd, Not to refute them would only further endanger the trusting relationship I have built up with the general reader over many years. These accusations suggest indirectly that dear old blood may be a literary hoax, and is the product of a mind so desperate for scholarly acclaim as to be, quote, possibly deranged. My lawyers assure me that the clever use of circumlocution and insinuation make these defamatory claims ineligible for the libel I hold them to be. Aside of the not inconsiderable damage done to my academic reputation, most worrying of all for Wittgenstein's scholasticism is the fundamental refusal of Murgatroyd et al. to give credence to the existence of a hard-boiled noir-style detective story called Dear Old Blood. Whilst they refer to the distinct possibility of a Rosrow Hall of notes pertaining to his philosophical investigations, the notion that he may have spent the summer of 1948 composing his own detective story is thought to be, quote, too preposterous to be taken seriously. Be that as it may, they condescend to engage critically with the hoax in order to demonstrate its transparent inauthenticity. I am thus forced to adopt a similar condescension in refuting some of the glaring errors they have made in relation to the text. Murgatroyd avers in a paper in the Wittgensteinian, issue 112, summer 2014, entitled Dear Old Truth Against the Scholarly Hoax, that there are several anachronisms that immediately allow him to disavow the veracity of the Rosrow find. He argues that the use of the philosopher's own gravestone as the dead letter box, enabling communication between the private investigator Nix and his client, fundamentally undermines the validity of the document. It soon becomes clear that Murgatroyd is reading into this gravestone his own biases and desires to prove the text false. As Murgatroyd would surely know if he had visited the cemetery in question, The gravestone chosen is quite typical of the style to be found in the former St Giles Cemetery and now Ascension Parish Burial Ground. Furthermore, if he were to roam further afield than the short distance between his wing-back Chesterfield armchair and the sherry decanter, he would know that this simple type of grave marker is relatively common in Anglican churches across the country. Murgatroyd then ramifies his point by criticising the method of communication that exists in this dead drop between Nix and his client. 
The use of Penny's Murgatroyd claims is clearly lifted from a photo freely available online, see figure one in the show notes, and which originates on the, quote, notoriously weak academic source, the online encyclopedia, wikipedia.org. Murgatroyd's lack of self-awareness comes to the fore here since his own point relies on the very source he claims to be notoriously weak. Murgatroyd's obsession with this damning evidence continues in his citation of a letter on the same webpage, written to the Times on the 3rd of September 2001, which reads as follows. Today there were 18 one coins on the grave of Ludwig Wittgenstein at the parish of the Ascension Burial Ground in Cambridge. Originally, some days ago, there were four spread about, and then five in a little pile to one side. This morning there were fifteen neatly underlining his name. Now there are three more, still neatly lined up. Over the years, numerous small objects have been placed on the grave, including a lemon, a pork pie, a Mr Kipling cupcake, and a Buddhist prayer wheel. It is all very intriguing. But the appearance of coins and sundry other votive offerings only strengthen, not undermine their appearance in dear old blood. Miscellaneous items have been and continue to be left at this gravestone over time, as they are on surrounding gravestones. If the story had made use of the small wooden ladder, he would have had greater cause to doubt the authenticity of these documents. But it does not. Pennies have long been used as extemporaneous votive offerings to the dead. No academic should need reminding of the classical allusion to paying the ferryman manifest in such coins. It is the living's only way of ensuring safe passage across the sticks for the dead, though Murgatroyd's ignorance of this possible reference suggests that he does require it. I now consider this point refuted. In addition, Murgatroyd heralds the appearance of Nazis in the hoax text as rendering the text more saleable referring to Nazi historian Richard J. Evans's assertion that people are still obsessed with the Nazis. See footnote. Murgatroyd suggests that, even if the text was authentic, Wittgenstein would not have written about Nazis, given how his family suffered at their hands. Surely this is precisely why he would have written about them. If the story is, as I believe, an exercise in self-absolution, the painful excision of lifelong tormenting guilt, and perhaps even philosophically, a confession qua confession, then why would he turn away from this episode in his family's life? Already, his admissions to Fania Pascalital reveal his anguish in having denied his perceived Jewishness. Finally, Murgatroyd ends his paper with a theatrical flourish, firstly by finding fault with what he labels a preemptive Horatian epigraph, before retorting with one of his own from the Roman poet's Ars Poetica, Fictions meant to amuse should be close to reality. Never one for understatement, the tireless philosopher then quotes Wittgenstein, experto crede, back at me. If you are unwilling to know what you are, your writing is a form of deceit. As much as this may chagrin my colleague, these epigraphs were chosen to reflect thematically the work at hand, as is the nature of epigraphs. Thus, Horace speaks fortitude in the face of adversity when he says, The man who is tenacious of purpose in a rightful cause is not shaken from his firm resolve by the frenzy of his fellow citizens clamouring for what is wrong, or by the tyrant's threatening countenance. Did not Wittgenstein spend his entire philosophical life arguing against philosophy 
as it is traditionally understood in the form of metaphysical inquiry? The refutation of the existence of philosophical problems as such put him at odds not just with his entire profession, but with his own academic vocation. What better quotation, then, than the Horus to voice the moral strength needed to endure such daily internal conflict? Murgatroyd's second flourish, the Wittgenstein quote, is, I take it, meant to address the first epigraph. A picture held us captive, and we could not get outside it, for it lay in our language, and language seemed to repeat it to us, inexorably. Both merely bolster the point I have just made regarding the kind of anti-philosophy that Wittgenstein was engaged in, the intellectual strain therein, as well as the moral necessity he saw in pursuing this line of thought. Wittgenstein's notions on self-deceit acknowledge that even his metaphilosophical disavowal of philosophical problems could itself result from the bewitchment of language. This is the intellectual maze he entered knowing that there might be no way out, a philosophical dead end. I believe that he found that exit in the detective fiction he wrote at Rosrow Cottage in the summer of 1948 entitled Dear Old Blood, and no amount of vituperative attacks will prevent me from arguing that this is the case. It should also be noted that Murgatroyd cites Deleuze and Guattari twice in his paper, a pair of pseudo-philosophers from the Continental School. In some academic circles, this would already be justification enough for his dossier on me to be viewed with the utmost suspicion. Critical Commentary, Part 1, by Horace Murgatroyd Dear Old Blood is remarkable in many ways, but perhaps no more so than in how authentic it feels. Maybe a collective desire for it to be genuine has helped convince the academic world and general public for so long that it was. Such is the brilliance of Herbert Denk's act of mendacity that I expect some people will always continue to believe in its legitimacy. Of course, there have been literary hoaxes before. One thinks inevitably of the Scottish bard Ossian, concocted by James Macpherson in the 18th century, or the more recent literary scandals aroused by the forged memoirs of James Frey and J.T. Leroy. But there is an especially peculiar genius at work in Dear Old Blood. A purely fictional archival find is presented to the unsuspecting reader with traditional academic paraphernalia. A foreword, end notes and commentaries, an afterword and an appendix. Buttressed thus by a seemingly rigorous scholarly framework, it serves itself up as a nine-clad truth. Yet, as I will demonstrate, all these accessories are entirely self-serving a facade masking the untruth at the heart of the work. The references it comes cloaked in are often no more than preemptive strikes against any possible doubters. Indeed, I am the principal target of these oft-barbed rebuttals, having spent the past few years contesting the authenticity of Denk's supposed discovery. The present book was provisionally entitled The Man Loaded with Mischief, in order to use the very tools wielded by the hoaxer against them, in this instance the name of a public house in the story which was no longer extant when Wittgenstein resided in Cambridge. 
Surely any person who concocts such a Byzantine ruse must be loaded with a desire to make mischief, and Denk is that person. What he hoped to gain by his fraud is as dark a mystery as any noir in the canon, and I have my own theories regarding this riddle. So, who is Herbert Denk? The biography is sketchy and concrete records have proved very hard to come by. I have been able to trace a brief chronology. Born in 1977 to Bertold and Hannah Denk, he was a child prodigy who was homeschooled. He appears to have studied philosophy from an early age, and although an age Denk appears on the student role of Bonn University, Frederick Nietzsche's alma mater, around about the time when Denk was likely to have matriculated, there is no corroborating evidence to suggest this was Herbert Denk. The record goes blank for several decades until 2012 and the appearance of a paper in the esteemed academic journal The Wittgensteinian, published under the name Herbert Denk. The paper was entitled Hard-Boiled Propositions, Wittgenstein and the Philosophy of Detection. The brief biographical entry in the front matter suggests he is a freelance philosopher with no academic tenure or professional chair to his name. One wonders how he convinced so esteemed an organ as the Wittgensteinian to accept his submission. This article generated a decent standard of epistolary discussion among the usual Wittgenstein scholars in subsequent issues, and nothing was heard again from Denk until a letter in the winter 2013 issue. This letter from Denk posits the idea that he now has concrete proof to support his theory with more to follow. Dear old blood, notes on a Wittgenstein noir, appeared the following spring, and my paper regarding its authenticity in the next issue. Until recently, this was where the story ended, but I am happy to report that new findings have uncovered more information relating to the events leading up to the book's publication. This has required a fresh scholastic approach, resulting in a sort of forensic psychological excavation of the Denk archive. In order to understand the hoaxer, it was first necessary to understand the rationale behind the hoax, with all the inherent dangers such mental cartography carries. Why would Herbert Denk have gone to such efforts to deceive the academic community and general reading public? Wittgenstein, after all, is becoming ever more recognisable as a thinker and now has his own literary canon. Wittgenstein's nephew, Thomas Bernard. Wittgenstein's mistress, David Markson. Wittgenstein Jr., Lars Eyer. To name but three. The abstruse nature of his thought and the extreme asceticism of his life merely add to the appeal. He remains an enigma. He is the sort of troubled genius that Hollywood makes biopics of and which overweening actors win Oscars for playing. Could it be that Denk merely wished to serve this wave of popularity? Did he think he could cling to the coattails of all that mystery and eccentricity all the way to the box office? Or is Denk a genuine amateur academic who only sought a seat at the table in the cloistered world of the academy? One possibility I have been pursuing is that Denk is a UK-based scholar who is feeling the pinch of the new Research Excellence Framework, REF, and its perverse focus on somehow measuring the impact of research. This quantitative approach, what some in the community are calling the neoliberalisation of higher education, is a lamentable development for the humanities, which, by its very nature, is inimical, which, by its very nature, is inimical to metrics-based assessment.
Another aspect of the REF is how it flattens academic publishing so that an article and a book are recorded the same weight. This new burden only adds to the increasing pressure all academics feel to churn out papers so that the university can boast of being home to full-star research, that is, world-leading in originality, significance and rigour. This pressure comes internally from the expectations and competition to be found within every university, as well as externally, for all academic work now exists in an instantly global dimension. The oft-forgotten dark side of the digital humanities is that paper writing has become an almost industrial process, and certain notorious websites, which both host these papers and announce newly uploaded contributions through instant email notifications, can have a negative impact on the mental health of the modern scholar. Was this the case with Denk? Occasionally in scholarship, just as you are pursuing one line of inquiry, the results of your research are capable of sending you in a wholly unexpected direction. The parallels with detective work are not lost on me. So it was recently when I made an interesting discovery that potentially cast the hoax in a new light. I now believe that Denk was partly inspired by Professor Arthur Gibson's trove of the so-called Pink Notebook, reported in The Guardian on 26th April 2011. The article, entitled Lost Archive Shows Wittgenstein in a New Light, heavily emphasised the riches of this, quote, untapped lost archive, how it provides, quote, fresh insights into the philosopher's mind and, quote, shines a fascinating light on the relationship with his amanuensis, Francis Skinner. Gibson speaks of how, quote, stunned he was by the find and his astonishment at the insights it offered into the philosopher's thought processes, going so far as to say, you're almost peering into his mind. In May 2013, he gave a detailed account of what this new Wittgenstein-Skinner archive had so far yielded in Philosophy at Cambridge Journal, which was subsequently reproduced in the British Wittgenstein Society, BWS, newsletter. Gibson is still working on a book of the find, the forthcoming Ludwig Wittgenstein Dictating Philosophy to Francis Skinner. The BWS represented a high watermark of Wittgenstein scholarship for Denk, with its annual conference and biannual lecture series, and he used them as a platform for his philosophy of detection theories regarding the philosopher. Having painstakingly laid down these foundations, he then approached them with the news that his theories had now been substantiated through an unprecedented find in County Galway, Ireland. A manuscript, written in Wittgenstein's hand, in English, and which appeared to be a hard-boiled detective story. Denk believed this to be the notes that Tommy Mulcairins was supposed to have helped Wittgenstein destroy in the fire at Rosrow Cottage. In his email, Denk states that, since the notes came wrapped in a sheet of green oilcloth, Denk had named it the Green Book, cleverly suggesting a shared lineage with the brown and blue books of lecture notes already published, the pink book recovered by Gibson, and a missing yellow notebook linked to conversations he had with the philosopher Titania Gorstein on a visit to Leningrad in 1935. In an astute touch, Denk compared his decision to publish the notes rather than consign them to oblivion as akin to Max Brod's editorial decision to ignore the wishes of Franz Kafka, who had also stipulated that his manuscripts be destroyed after his death. 
Denk argues that just as a 20th century without the trial is now unimaginable, so will a 21st century without dear old blood, at least for Wittgenstein scholars. It is an enormously grandiose claim, and perhaps it was this egotistical overreach that made the BWS Executive Committee get in touch with myself regarding Denk's purported find. I immediately raised my suspicions and suggested that they delay any announcements pending further inquiries. I felt compelled to cite several particularly egregious instances of revisionism Denk had already exhibited in the Wittgensteinian. On the strength of my word alone, Denk's membership was immediately annulled. This must surely have rankled with Denk, but I felt duty-bound by the ethics of my position within the Academy. Remaining silent was never an option. Denk subsequently worked his way through the other Wittgenstein societies, presumably ranking them by the location he felt would carry the most academic heft. Thus, the Austrian, North American and Nordic societies were all approached. All rebuffed his advances once word of his BWS annulment got out. Denk was forced to go further afield, approaching the Indian and Chinese Wittgenstein societies. It may seem strange to the listener that such exotic locales should pay host to Wittgenstein devotees, but both are countries in which profound philosophical traditions have existed for as long as that in the West, if not longer. If Denk thought that he could prey on some naivety he presumably imagined resided in the East, he was sadly mistaken. In the internet age, all distances have been curtailed. One's misdemeanours are no longer circumscribed by the barriers of time and space. Geographical aspect or temporal obsolescence can no longer preserve a tainted reputation. Everything is here and now, and eternally recoverable in a globally networked world. This is equally true of an academy which has had to thrive in this new digital sphere in order to compete with the challenge of the new pedagogic behemoths of distance learning and MOOCs, massive open online courses. The Indian and Chinese Wittgenstein societies rebuffed Denk's approaches too. With diminishing options, Denk was forced to create an academic outlet for his revelation and thus the Irish Wittgenstein society was founded with an executive committee of one. Not that this was known to the public applying for membership. Denk's subterfuge was rigorous to the end, and his goals cloaked through layers of obfuscation and opaque walls of administration. The committee members remained anonymous. The registration process was free, and such as the draw of the Austrian philosopher, subscriptions duly followed, enough to provide an audience for his dramatic disclosure. After The Guardian got wind of it and ran an article, a media scrum followed. Denk was clearly doing work behind the scenes, as the articles contained quotes from the intangible man. I couldn't believe my eyes when I first saw the notes. It provides an almost wholesale change of aspect for his major works. The true motivation behind the thinking is finally visible. Here, finally, is the key to unlocking the very heart of Wittgenstein's philosophy. One cannot but be struck by the similarities with that earlier article in the same paper reporting Gibson's find. Some of the phraseology is almost like for like. There is the same wonderment, the same belief in its transformative power over the philosopher's oeuvre, and the same belief that the notes allow one to finally peer behind the wizard's curtain and see how the magic is done. Other quotes, however, reveal a very different agenda to Gibson's. In spite of the vociferous green-eyed doubters, 
I always believed Wittgenstein was engaged in a philosophy of detection, and I have finally been vindicated. Yes, the manuscript is in a very secure place. Of course I would be happy for experts to examine the find, in the right circumstances, but those circumstances have yet to materialise. I am extremely keen to publish the notes so that both academics and the general public can make their own assessment of these astonishing notes. This last comment was enough to have even normally reserved academic publishers scrambling to get hold of Denk's find, despite its authenticity being uncorroborated via the customary peer-reviewed processes which were once the foundation of good scholarship. In this instance, close scrutiny of the notes by a graphologist should be the minimum requirement. Better still would have been a deeper engagement with the trove through forensic linguistics. So far as I know, neither was done. The publishers saw a huge hit on their hands and lay their academic scruples aside. The book came out in the spring and was an instant hit with the general public. Whilst many academics remained highly sceptical of the notes and scathing of its publication, some sought to garner kudos by association and were quick to add their own puffs to the book jacket. Genuinely thrilling, Professor John T. Simonon. In one fell swoop, Denk has recalibrated Wittgenstein's scholarship almost in its entirety. Dr. Felicity Gladwell. The academic find of the century. A.J. Vols. In the meantime, the website for the Irish Wittgenstein Society had been erased, existing only as a single cached homepage. Its utility had been expended. Denk had his book deal, the notoriety he sought and multiple revenue streams. There was even talk of Hollywood coming calling about an adaptation for the big screen. It was then that Denk slipped out of view altogether. Rather than savouring these successes, he eschewed the limelight of book signings and literary festivals. Was he being careful not to overexpose himself, sensitive to the scrutiny such a spotlight would cast on himself and his methods? Or was he merely biding his time, sizing up the next philosophical stock to invest his dubious talents in, before he unveils another literary forgery on an all-too-trusting public? It is also possible he has made enough to retire on, and this fraud was a one-time deal. A more morbid suggestion is that the author, whoever he or she was, has died. Time will play its part in unfolding the truth of his disappearance, but I shall not sit idly by in the interim. There is foraging and analysis to be done in the archive, even if only in the extant publications we have from Denk, and that is what I have been doing. Dear Old Blood, Notes on a Wittgenstein Noir will return in the final episode, episode 10, part 2 of Horace Murgatroyd's Critical Commentary. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you might like to consider others by the same writer and producer, such as Baker Street 2033 and Modern Gothic. All are available from the usual podcast outlets. You could also consider supporting the writer at buymeacoffee.com slash Neil Fitzgerald.